I gave a reading in Miami in, in November at the book festival, and I did this literary death match. Do you guys know what this is? It's like they, there's four readers, and then there's a panel of judges, and you read for five minutes, and then they, they judge you humorously. <laughs> and it, it's, ter- it's utterly terrifying. And um, <coughs> Eileen Miles told me I held the microphone like a game show host. <laughs> I want to put that on my next book. Um, <coughs> I'm going to read a story that's uh, it's a little bit of a longer story and one that I very rarely get to read because I um, rarely get to read by myself for so long, but it's so snowy outside. I thought I'd just go ahead and do it. This story is called Migration. It's the last story in the book. The Germans were arguing about directions. Lennart understood some ger- German. He'd studied it at school, but he was having a hard time following what they were saying. Beside him on the seat, a dozen bird decoys in a clear plastic bag stared, at, stared up at him. He sipped his coffee, listened for words he knew. They hadn't left the hotel parking lot yet. He'd met the Germans in the bar the night before, Saturday. The bar was crowded, and Lennart had found himself sharing a booth with the Germans. They were biologists and had already been drunk by the time Lennart sat down. He couldn't remember the name of the university where they worked, but he remembered that it was near a lake and that they'd come to Denmark to research birds. They were married. He remembered this too. Annika was a little taller than her husband, Matthias, and she talked more than he did. Near the end of the night, over shots of Danish bitters, Annika had insisted Leonard join them in the morning, the mile, she'd said, and swept her arm out in front of her, nearly toppling a row of empty glasses, is unlike anything else. He'd tried to decline the invitation, but Annika insisted. Tomorrow's your last chance, she said. We leave Sunday. Leonard planned to go home Sunday, too. He agreed to join them, assuming that even if he remembered the commitment in the morning, he'd be, t- he'd be tired or else sleep late and miss them. At six or so, he woke up, still wearing his shirt and socks, the television whispering to the room. He dug his head under the lumpy pillow. The pillow smelled strongly of detergent, and beneath that, some musky human smell. By seven, he was sitting up in bed with a cup of terrible hotel coffee muted by a splash of whiskey. The television, which had been playing an endless loop of short advertisements regarding local attractions, flashed to a sweeping aerial shot of wide dunes gripped in places by patches of tall grass. Immediately, he understood this must be Roeburg Mile, where the Germans were going to take him. He felt a swab of drinker's shame pass over him as he remembered the invitation. It was Marie's idea that he come to Denmark. She had suggested the trip so that he might get away, as she put it, from a rotten year. It was true his year had been challenging. In June, his father had died. Then the following April, about a week before Easter, his grandfather died. Leonard discovered the body had been the one to let the police and the coroner into the apartment. All of it was sad and exhausting. He'd been a difficult person to live with in the last year. For one thing, he drank too much and was moody. He was prone to get angry or worse, turn inward and shut down, ignore Marie and Tuve for long stretches. They'd all moved into Lennart's grandfather's apartment that spring, and for the most part, the arrangement was working fine. He was happy with Marie. They rarely fought. He enjoyed being around her, talking with her. They made love often enough, and he loved Tuve as if she were his own daughter. But beneath all that, there was a sense of finality, of permanence, pressing on him. 
It was immature, he knew, to feel such anxiety about the ways his life had changed and continued to change now that they were a family. It bothered him more than the deaths of his father and grandfather. Marie had convinced him to come to Skagen. She told him about the art galleries and restaurants and the waves that crashed into each other where the North Sea and the Baltic met. She made the place sound restorative, but to Lennart, it was cold and dreary, and he'd barely managed to make it out of his room at all. The trip so far had been a failure. He'd been concocting lies all week about where he'd been and what he'd done. She would be disappointed if she knew the truth. He'd gone so far as to stop outside an art gallery on one of his daily walks to take note of the exhibiting artist's names so that he might tell Marie about the paintings. In truth, he'd mostly spent the week drinking in his room and in the evenings at the hotel bar. By Wednesday, he'd achieved a kind of mania that scratched and buzzed at him deeply, so much so that he was incapable of controlling his own decisions and actions. He simply experienced them. So when he got up and packed a small bag to take with him to the dunes, he found that each of his movements was deliberate, inevitable, and he did not stop to question himself. His body acted before his mind. It was out of character for him to agree to such a trip, or anyway, out of character to actually follow through with it. But in the context of his behavior in Skagen so far that week, it made perfect sense. In the mirror, <coughs> he gave his face a close inspection and decided he didn't need to shave. Then he showered and dressed and met the Germans close to eight in the dining room. There was some awkward small talk as they made their way to the parking lot, and more still when Annika tried to insist he ride in the front seat and Lennart refused a process that was repeated several times until Annika gave up which is how Lennart found himself sitting behind her, beside the bag of bird decoys, listening to her and Matthias argue in German. Annika turned around in her seat and said in English, we're just figuring out a new way to drive to the dunes. Matthias is being stubborn as usual. She swatted at his shoulder with her hand. Matthias smiled. He put the car in gear and eased out of the parking spot. We're off, he said. Then he said something in German to Annika and touched her leg tenderly. Soon the city was behind them and the road opened up to a broad flat stretch of land where farms had been squared out across the sandy ground. The wind hummed somberly over the top of the car. I hate this song, Annika said and switched the radio off. Leonard, do you know very much about the mile? Before Leonard could answer, Matthias said, this whole area and pointed back and forth across the landscape with a finger is very windy. The sand comes out of the sea on the west side of the peninsula and moves across the land to the east and back to the sea. The mile is the largest migrating sand dune in, in northern Europe. Funny to think about, isn't it, said Annika, moving ground. In no time, they were off the main road, following the signs posted in many different languages to the parking lot at the dune's edge. There weren't many cars in the lot. Matthias parked near the trailhead along the ridge of the nearest dunes. Grass rattled in the wind. <coughs> Sorry. Leonard helped take the equipment from the car. Many species of bre birds breed here in the spring, Annika said after they'd gone a little bit down the trail. She was breathing heavily with the weight of the bags she was carrying and the difficulty of walking in the deep sand. In late autumn, they come back on their migration south. We think these groups end up in Africa, maybe Italy. We've been hoping to find tags from other countries on the birds so we'll know for sure. So far only the Netherlands and two from France. Leonard looked at the bag of decoys. He was surprised by how attentive he'd been to Annika's explanation. He had assumed 
He'd simply go with the Germans to the mile and leave them to work while he walked around, maybe read for a little bit, enjoy what was sure to be one of the only warm days of his trip, certainly one of the only activities he could report to Marie. But the Germans' work captivated him, and he wanted to stay to watch. Do you catch the birds, he asked her. With a net, she said, you'll see. We want to compare population sizes from this year and five years ago when we came here last. If we see a decrease, we know that there's been habitat destruction. Plovers, that's the type of bird Matthias and I study, are very common and robust species in Northern Europe. To see a decrease in their numbers would be ecologically discouraging. The wind was warm and he had to squint against the blowing sand. When they'd reached the spot, a spot at the foot of a tall rise where there was an open space between the dunes, Matthias dropped the bags he was carrying and said, here. They worked fast. Annika stretched a large square of dark green nylon between two articulated poles Matthias had removed from a cylindrical case, unfolded, and driven into the sand about two meters apart. She and Matthias tied guy lines to each pole, pulled the lines tight, and fastened them to stakes anchored in the sand. Using a length of rope, Matthias measured out a rectangle about the size of a small car. This didn't take him long. Soon he was arranging more articulated poles on each side of the rectangle. He then spread out a net and stretched it to reach the poles. When Matthias worked, Annika took the decoys from the bag one by one and fastened a metal spike to the undersides. She held one up to Lennart. Birds are like us, she said. They'll always come to where they find others. He'd never thought of himself that way, but he supposed the morning had proved that he was. What happens when the birds land, he asked. See the poles Matthias is working with, Annika said, pointing with a decoy. The joints are hinged. The birds come in like this. She brought the bird back toward her body. They land beside these decoys, and when the wind conditions are ideal, we pull on the line, and the net rises into the wind and falls over the birds. It's called a clap net. Does it injure the birds, asked Leonard. Rarely, Annika said. She picked up another decoy, pushed the metal spike firmly into the body, and placed the birds with the others. We've named each one of these wooden birds, she said. It's funny to think about this one as Frank. Do you have a family, Leonard? A girlfriend, he said. She has a daughter. Tuva had just started school that fall. She was in kindergarten. Most days, Leonard walked with her the three blocks to her school. It was part of his day he usually liked. Annika tapped the decoy on the sand. Matthias and I aren't really married. Well, he is. I was once, too. Leonard wasn't sure he'd heard her correctly. She pushed a metal spike neatly into a decoy. He watched this. I'm sorry, he said. We've worked together 18 years this fall, she said, without looking up from the birds. When we travel for our research, we pretend we're married. It started as a joke. I think Matthias was just afraid to tell me what he wanted. Leonard looked to Matthias, who was tethering the net to the poles forcefully. The first time we were in France, close to Dunkirk in a hotel no near the beach, I'll never forget. We don't talk about it during the rest of the year, only when we're on trips like this one. We stay together in one room, we sleep together. She looked down at the, one of the decoys. His wife has no idea. We travel twice every year for our work, once in the fall and once in the spring. I imagine you think it's terrible. Leonard leaned back on his heels, his legs stretched uncomfortably. Not at all. Perhaps she was joking, and the punchline was going to be his incorrect reaction. Marie did this to him all the time. She'd tell him a story about work or about Tuva, and if he wasn't listening closely enough or responded the wrong way, <coughs> she'd tease him for his inattention, for a faulty moral judgment that would allow him to excuse some terrible thing someone at work had done or a story on the news. He looked at Matthias again. Any second, he expected Annika to cry out with laughter. 
Do you know, Annika said in a tone that was unexpectedly quiet. She held the decoy out in front of her. I used to dislike it, but not anymore. It's like living a make-believe life. Matthias was squatting beside the net and moved quickly, crab-like, farther down to the, ar- to the array, uh, farther down the array to the corner closest to Annika and Lennart. After every trip, she said, Matthias goes back to his wife and their two sons. The boys are almost grown now. When Matthias had finished with the net, he walked slowly over to where Annika and Lennart were kneeling. Each of his steps sent a spray of sand up around his feet. He leaned forward and kissed Annika on the top of her head. She closed her eyes and bowed into his kiss. Leonard helped place the decoys at even distances across the space where the net would fall. They settled the birds into the soft sand. There's that plow again. Yeah, sorry. Told you I'm not very good at it. I should hold it like a... All right. Leonard helped place the decoys at even distances across the space where the net would fall. They settled the birds into the soft sand. Matthias checked the hinge joints, lifting and releasing the array several times. The wind filled the blind. Later, Matthias served coffee from a thermos. Now we wait, he said as he handed, handed Lennart a cup. They sat in the shade of the blind for a long time. He watched the shadow change shape. He didn't want to seem rude to the Germans, so he insisted whenever either of them offered that he was more comfortable on the sand. His back hurt. He wished he had something to drink. The sand was warm and the sun was hot when the wind wasn't blowing. He took two short walks up the dunes but never got very far. Got so far that he couldn't see the Germans. There weren't many other people out. Given the time of year, this didn't surprise him. It was almost two o'clock in the afternoon when Leonard returned from one of his walks. Annika and Matthias were speaking in German to each other. Leonard tried to guess what they might be talking about, but he, sh- but he could never seem to string together enough words to be sure. When they'd stopped talking for a little while, Leonard turned to Matthias and said, Annika was telling me about your sons. The wind was blowing hard against the blind. Our boys, she said, and smiled at Matthias. Leonard looked at her, curious if he'd catch a playful smile, some evidence of a lie. We have two boys, Matthias after his father, and the younger one is named Carl. We've been so lucky. She stroked Matthias's arm. Matthias, the older boy, is at Constanz, where we teach. He just started and wants to be an engineer. And Carl, Leonard said, what about him? The sun was warm on his face. He closed his eyes. The father of a boy he'd known in school had had a secret family, a wife and three children in Finland. Something small, a postcard or a bill, maybe a birthday card, had caused the lie to collapse. People in the neighborhood where Leonard grew up still gossiped about it. Carl lives in Munich, Annika said. He works at a bank. We're very proud of him. Another hour passed, and the birds still hadn't come. Annika spent the time solving math puzzles in a torn and creased paperback, chewing on the tip of a pen and nodding her head slowly. Her feet were in Matthias's lap. He was leaning back in his chair, his hat pulled down low over his eyes, one of his hands resting against Annika's crossed legs. Leonard read the newspaper he'd taken that morning from the hotel. There was a car crash in Friedrichshavn, two Volkswagens, identical in every way except that one was from Denmark and the other from Sweden and had an accident in a traffic circle near the ferry terminal. No one spoke. Lennart saw the birds first. A low-slung black cloud shook and pulsed on the horizon. He placed the newspaper in the sand. At first he couldn't tell what he was looking at. The cloud moved as if it were a single body. When one side expanded outward, the opposite side followed, closing in the open space. 
He watched for a moment before it occurred to him that he was looking at a flock of birds. There, he said, pointing. When he spoke, he heard that his voice sounded higher-pitched and unfamiliar. Come closer to the blind so that you don't frighten them, Annika said. Lennart crawled through the sand toward Annika and knelt beside her. The birds approached, and a group split from the flock and landed in the sand all around them. They were taller than the decoys and much more dramatically colored. Some had yellow mixed in with black and gray feathers along their backs and a long S-shaped line of white along the sides of their heads. The birds shook and stepped in short, rapid movements while Matthias and Annika whispered to each other, also moving quickly, and before Lennart knew what had happened, Matthias pulled the line and the net rose straight up into the wind. The net paused at the apex of its arc and everything seemed to fall silent, and then the wind caught the net and it clapped down violently. The birds not in the net exploded into the air from the sand. He listened to the caught birds trying to flap their wings beneath the net. Soon they stopped struggling, and there was no noise, only the net rising and falling with the bird's heavy breathing. Matthias reached under the net and pulled out the first bird. He spoke softly to it as he lifted it up, held it close to his chest. He turned the bird slowly in his hands and lifted each of its wings. Then he placed a blue plastic tag around the bird's leg and crimped it shut with a pair of pliers. He and Annika took turns removing a single bird at a time, made note of its tag if it had one, fastened their own tag on the bird's leg, performed what Lennart guessed was a brief medical exam, and then released it. This they did by setting the bird down in the sand and waiting for it to fly away. It took a long time to make it through all but one of the birds. Twenty-seven, Annika said to Matthias, who was approaching the final bird. The bird wasn't moving, and as Matthias got closer, he said something to Annika that Lennart didn't understand. Lennart watched them both to see how he should react. The bird was pinned beneath the pole. The net twisted and knotted around its neck. It's dead, Annika said, without touching the bird to confirm that she was right. Matthias lifted the net and untangled the bird. He held it in both hands, looking down at it for a moment, and walked to a stand of grass and placed the bird behind this. Lennart was surprised at how easy all of this seemed, but he didn't know what else he would have, he would have expected to happen. That's all, he said. If this was another species of bird, said Annika, or if we knew it was diseased, we would freeze the body to study it later. But plovers are common, and this one appears healthy. What this bird will tell us about the plover population of northern Europe is only that accidents sometimes happen. Anyway, said Matthias, we don't have the proper equipment to freeze the bird. Shouldn't we bury it? asked Leonard. No, Annika said, an animal will find the bird and eat it. The rest will decompose. If you bury it in the sand, the bird will rot. Shall we say a funeral prayer too, Matthias said, laughing. Light a candle. Don't listen to him. Unceremonious disposal of a dead body is not necessarily an indication of a lack of respect for these birds or for nature. Animals die. This is normal in any ecosystem. We die, they die, it's nothing. Lennart watched the Germans finish their work. They took down the blind and disassembled the net and the poles, neatly packing everything. Leonard helped as he felt he could, but mostly he just watched. He tried not to look at the dead bird. He helped take equipment back to the car, following a short distance behind Annika and Matthias, who seemed to have been energized by the success of the net and their work and spoke loudly about a restaurant they wanted to try in Skagen that evening. They were nearly back to the car when Leonard remembered the newspaper. He helped the Germans load the equipment in the trunk in the back seat and then went back for the paper. He walked quickly down the trail, struggling to keep his pace in the sand. Up ahead, he saw some birds, gulls maybe, circling above. He reached the place where they'd set up the blind and the net. Some larger birds had landed and were pecking at the plover's carcass. When Lennart got close, the larger birds flew off. 
Nanaka had said this would happen, of course, and he knew enough to know that it was natural, but something about the tiny, bloodied body of the bird in the sand bothered him. He kicked some sand at it to cover the body, but this didn't feel right either, so he took, so he took the paper and opened it and picked the carcass up and wrapped it in the paper as tightly as he could. He didn't know what to do after this, so he opened his backpack and placed the bird carefully inside. The Germans were waiting in the car when he got back. When he left the trail for the asphalt of the parking lot, he waved and began to jog no more quickly than he could have walked, probably, toward the car. Matthias put the car in gear and started driving before Lennart was settled. The door slammed with the momentum. He held his backpack on his lap. Annika, her hand rested on Matthias' shoulder, turned in her seat to look over her own shoulder at Lennart. Did you find what you were looking for? He hadn't said why he was going back. I left my newspaper, he said. What did you think of the mile, Lennart? Matthias asked. The grasses and the waves of sand were pretty, a little boring, unsurprising maybe. He liked watching the Germans work, though he still hadn't decided whether Annika had been joking about her and Matthias. The joke, or whatever it was, wasn't particularly funny, but given that he didn't know Annika at all, it hardly seemed like an honest, an honest admission. He'd tried to imagine telling Marie about it, but there wasn't really a way, as far as he could tell, to do so without seeming to betray an intimacy with Annika that he hadn't had. Marie would be curious about the context for such a story, and he knew she'd have the same questions he did about the arrangement, whether it was true or not. There were fewer people than I'd expected, he said finally. We're so far from everything up here, Annika said. One might really do anything at all. On the drive back to the hotel, Matthias and Annika talked more about the restaurant which had been re recommended to them. They were going to leave before lunch the next day. He looked at Annika for a sign that she was disappointed about the end of the trip. She'd kept her hand on Matthias' shoulder the whole drive, and when Matthias looked, brought up the return trip, suggesting that they stop for the night in Hamburg on the way home, Annika dropped her hand to his leg and looked away. At the hotel, he helped the Germans take the equipment inside. He carried his backpack in a black plastic case about the size of his chest. He hadn't remembered seeing the case at the mile, but assumed, assumed the Germans' work required all kinds of equipment they hadn't seen, he hadn't seen in just one day spent with them. They gathered everything in the lobby, close to the elevators. Matthias went back to the car for the last of the things. It was late in the afternoon, and the sun, low on the horizon, shone in brightly through the tall windows. A nicely dressed couple came out of the bar and crossed the lobby. They walked slowly and deliberately around the equipment. Lennart heard the woman ask the man in a whisper, Are they making a film, do you think? The man looked at Lennart and shrugged. He passed very close, and Lennart smelled the alcohol on his breast. Breath. <laughs> breast, that's funny. The day he had arrived, he'd bought two bottles of Japanese whiskey in Friedrichshaven. The first bottle was already empty. He was looking forward to a drink when he got up to his room. When the couple had gone, Annika leaned close to Lennart. She smelled like sweat, but not unpleasantly slow. I know what you did, she said. I'm sorry, Lennart said. His face got warm, and he looked past her. I'd only guessed it before, she said, but I can tell I was right by the way you're acting. You did something with the plover, didn't you? I went back for the newspaper, he said quietly, like I told you. We can't tell Matthias. I think it's kind of funny, even a little sweet, but he'd be angry. Did you bury it? Is that what took so long? Of course not. What then, she said. You don't have it with you. Of course not, he said again. Annika looked at his backpack and up at Lennart. We know something about each other now, she said. Matthias came in holding the last of the gear. A bag was slipping from his shoulder. We were just talking about dinner, Annika said. He isn't going to join us after all. It's the last night of your trip. I'm sure you want some quiet before you go home to your family, Leonard said. 
Well, Matthias said coolly, come down for a drink later. In his room, Lennart placed his backpack on the dresser beneath it where the television was mounted to the wall. He poured himself a drink and sat down on the bed with it. He flipped through the television channels, watching, a short, watching short flashes of American sitcoms and Danish news programs and a German documentary film about the large plastic garbage patch in the Pacific, several, time, t several times larger than Switzerland. The narrator said this repeatedly as if it were precise measurement of size. Lennart got up to refill his glass. He opened the bag and looked inside. The weather forecast was the first thing he saw, a sun and a cloud, a single date apart. He reached in and unwrapped the paper and lifted the bird's carcass from the bag. He placed it on the dresser beside his drink. The bird had stiffened a little bit and the beak was tucked tightly against the body. He lifted the bird and looked at the feathers, stretched each wing out to see how long they were. He turned the body in his hands, mimicking as best he could, he could the movements Matthias and Annika had performed earlier. The bird wasn't tagged. He guessed this meant it was probably young, but hadn't had the time to get caught. He put it down and picked up his glass. The glass was nearly empty, and this shocked him, though the feeling passed quickly and left a tingle in his chest as, he'd thought he'd, as if he'd thought he'd lost his car keys or telephone and suddenly remembered they were only in his pocket. The body is so much more immediate to all we experience than the mind. He lifted the glass, held it at eye level, watched the liquid calm, and measured with disappointment how much he'd already had. He finished what was left in one gulp. Early the morning after his father died, he'd received a phone call from the summer house. The police had called the evening before to confirm the death, so he was surprised and a little frightened to see his father's number flash across the screen of his phone early the next morning. The call was from Henrik Brandt, the man who owned the house up the road, a nearest little outcropping of rock his father had always called Bull's Head. Henrik had woken him with the call. It was before dawn. He didn't want anything, and he didn't say why he was in the house. He just apologized for calling so early and told Leonard he was sorry to have heard the news. Leonard didn't know how to respond, so he thanked the man for his concern. It wasn't until later that it occurred to him that the situation was strange. That afternoon, Leonard looked up the number for the Upland County Police Authority and called to report Henrik's phone call. He was transferred to a woman who introduced herself as a case officer in the Nortelia Police Department. She assured him that the police would investigate the call, but that it was nothing he should be concerned about. When he pressed her on this, insisting that he didn't suspect that Henrik was involved in the death, only that it seemed odd that he would enter the house of a person he knew was dead and then call that person's son, the woman said, people sometimes act in unusual ways following a death. After he hung up, he tried, he tried to rest the telephone in its cradle but was distracted and his hand slipped and he dropped the telephone to the floor where it broke apart. He spent that afternoon resoldering a wire, wire to the microphone and gluing the plastic, bla plastic casing back together as best he could. Then he called himself from his cell phone several times to check that the microphone on the landline worked. The nature program had ended and the bird was staring at him. He tried to sip his whiskey, but the glass was empty. He got up and filled it. The bottle was nearly half gone. He looked at his reflection in the small circular mirror beside the television. He hated this hotel. He leaned in and looked closely in the mirror. Even in the dim, shaky light from the television, he could tell his eyes had reddened. He had to do something with the bird. He wrapped it in the newspaper again, sun and clouds facing him. Tomorrow would be more rain. He held the package in one hand, the drink in his other. He was warm in his chest, and the bird weighed nothing at all. He could barely feel it. With the hand that was holding the bird, he opened the door, pulling it until it was wide enough to fit his foot in the crack of light and pull open. The hall was empty. 
He held the bird close to his chest. Next to the elevator was a shiny brass trash can with a large plastic bowl on top that had once been an ashtray. He would put the bird inside, go back to his room, pour himself another drink, watch television until he fell asleep. Before he could, the elevator bell sounded. He heard, he heard the car come to a stop. Doors opened. Three people stepped out, a man and a woman and a young girl, a family. The woman took the girl's hand and pulled her close, out of Leonard's way as they passed. Excuse us, the woman said. She said this in Danish, but Leonard could hear right away that she was Swedish. He and Marie t had talked about maybe about taking a family vacation, but it hadn't happened yet. Maybe in the summer they would take the ferry to Åland to go camping. Leonard felt the bird and his drink in his hand and turned to hide both from the family. He smiled at them, got on the elevator, and pressed the button for the lobby. He left his empty glass on the floor of the elevator. In the dark under the lip of the bar, one hand rested heavily over its tiny sh shape. He held the bird on his lap. He ordered a beer and drank it quickly. There was a soccer match on television and a crowd of people there to watch. He kept one hand on the bird. With the other, he, sco he scrolled through his phone aimlessly. He hadn't checked his email all week. Marie had written to say she was going to meet him at the train station in Stockholm when he arrived on Sunday. She missed him and hoped that his trip had been calming. He wrote back briefly to tell her that he planned to drive himself to the ferry in Friedrichshaven and get the train to Gothenburg and be home before Tuve went to bed. It was simple. He hoped whatever choice he made in the morning was just what he told Marie he'd do, or at least something like it. It was late when the Germans arrived. The game was over. Lennart still sat at the bar, the bird on his lap, his hand on the bird. Annika's cheeks were flushed, and Matthias was grinning widely. They approached Lennart, sat on either side of him. Matthias put his hand on Lennart's shoulder and squeezed. What a surprise, Annika said. A wonderful dinner, and now this. Now you. Here you are. Thanks. to take questions, but I'm just as happy to know.